Section 17 of The Rover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Theoden Humphrey. The Rover by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 16, Part 1. Astern of the Tartan, the sun, about to set, kindled a streak of dull crimson glow between the darkening sea and the overcast sky. The peninsula of Gian and the islands of Hierre formed one mass of land, detaching itself, very black, against the fiery girdle of the horizon. But to the north, the long stretch of the Alpine coast continued beyond sight, its endless sinuosities under the stooping clouds. The Tartan seemed to be rushing, together with the run of the waves, into the arms of the oncoming night. A little more than a mile away, on her lee quarter, the Amelia, under all plain sail, pressed to the end of the chase. It had lasted now for a good many hours, for Peyrol, when slipping away, had managed to get the advantage of the Amelia from the very start. While still within the large sheet of smooth water which is called the Hier Roadstead, the Tartan, which was already a craft of extraordinary speed, managed to gain positively on the sloop. Afterwards, by suddenly darting down the eastern passage between the two last islands of the group, Peyrol actually got out of sight of the chasing ship, being hidden by the Ile de Levant for a time. The Amelia, having to tack twice in order to follow, lost ground once more. Emerging into the open sea, she had to tack again, and then the position became that of a stern chase, which proverbially is known as a long chase. Peyrol's skillful seamanship had twice extracted from Captain Vincent a low murmur accompanied by a significant compression of lips. At one time the Amelia had been near enough the Tartan to send a shot ahead of her. That one was followed by another, which whizzed extraordinarily close to the mastheads. But then Captain Vincent ordered the gun to be secured again. He said to his first lieutenant, who, his speaking trumpet in hand, kept at his elbow, "'We must not sink that craft on any account. "'If we could get only an hour's calm, "'we would carry her with the boats.' "'The lieutenant remarked that there was no hope of a calm "'for the next twenty-four hours, at least. "'No,' said Captain Vincent, "'and in about an hour it will be dark, "'and then he may very well give us the slip. "'The coast is not very far off, "'and there are batteries on both sides of Frejus, "'under any of which he will be as safe from capture "'as though he were hove up on the beach.' "'And look!' he exclaimed after a moment's pause. "'This is what the fellow means to do!' "'Yes, sir,' said the lieutenant, keeping his eyes on the white speck ahead, "'dancing lightly on the short Mediterranean waves. "'He is keeping off the wind!' "'We will have him in less than an hour,' said Captain Vincent, "'and made as if he meant to rub his hands, "'but suddenly leaned his elbow on the rail. "'After all,' he went on, "'properly speaking, it is a race between the Amelia and the Knight.' "'And it will be dark early today,' said the first lieutenant, "'swinging the speaking trumpet by its lanyard. "'Shall we take the yards off the backstays, sir?' "'No,' said Captain Vincent. "'There is a clever seaman aboard that tartan. "'He is running off now, but at any time he may haul up again. "'We must not follow him too closely, "'or we shall lose the advantage which we have now. "'That man is determined on making his escape.' If those words, by some miracle, could have been carried to the ears of Peyrol, they would have brought to his lips 
a smile of malicious and triumphant exultation. Ever since he had laid his hand on the tiller of the tartan, every faculty of his resourcefulness and seamanship had been bent on deceiving the English captain, that enemy whom he had never seen, the man whose mind he had constructed for himself from the evolutions of his ship. Leaning against the heavy tiller, he addressed Michel, breaking the silence of the strenuous afternoon. "'This is the moment,' his deep voice uttered quietly. "'Ease off the main sheet, Michel. A little now only.' When Michel returned to the place where he had been sitting to windward, the rover noticed his eyes fixed on his face wonderingly. Some vague thoughts had been forming themselves slowly, incompletely, in Michel's brain. Perrault met the utter innocence of the unspoken inquiry with a smile that, beginning sardonically on his manly and sensitive mouth, ended in something resembling tenderness. "'That's so, comrade,' he said, with a particular stress and intonation, as if those words contained a full and sufficient answer. Most unexpectedly, Michel's round and generally staring eyes blinked, as if dazzled. He, too, produced from somewhere in the depths of his being a queer, misty smile, from which Peyrol averted his gaze. "'Where is the citizen?' he asked, bearing hard against the tiller and staring straight ahead. "'He hasn't gone overboard, is he? I don't seem to have seen him since we rounded the land near Pocherol Castle.' Michel, after craning his head forward to look over the edge of the deck, announced that Chevola was sitting on the keelson. "'Go forward,' said Peyrol, "'and ease off the foresheet now a little. This tartan has wings,' he added to himself. Alone on the afterdeck, Peyrol turned his head to look at the Amelia. That ship, in consequence of holding her wind, was now crossing obliquely the wake of the tartan. At the same time she had diminished the distance.' Nevertheless, Peyrol considered that, had he really meant to escape, his chances were as eight to ten, practically an assured success. For a long time he had been contemplating the lofty pyramid of canvas towering against the fading red belt on the sky, when a lamentable groan made him look round. It was Chevola. The citizen had adopted the mode of progression on all fours and while Payroll looked at him, he rolled to leeward, saved himself rather cleverly from going overboard, and holding on desperately to a cleat, shouted in a hollow voice, pointing with the other hand as if he had made a tremendous discovery, La terre! La terre! Certainly, said Payroll, steering with extreme nicety. What of that? I don't want to be drowned, cried the citizen, in his new hollow voice. Peyrol reflected a bit before he spoke in a serious tone. "'If you stay where you are, I assure you that you will,' he glanced rapidly over his shoulder at the Amelia, "'not die by drowning.' He jerked his head sideways. "'I know that man's mind.' "'What man? Whose mind?' yelled Shivola with intense eagerness and bewilderment. "'We are only three on board!' But Peyrol's mind was contemplating maliciously the figure of a man with long teeth in a wig and with large buckles to his shoes. Such was his ideal conception of what the captain of the Amelia ought to look like. 
that officer whose naturally good-humoured face wore then a look of severe resolution had beckoned his first lieutenant to his side again we are gaining he said quietly i intend to close with him to windward we won't risk any of his tricks it is very difficult to outmanoeuvre a frenchman as you know send a few armed marines on the forecastle ahead i am afraid the only way to get hold of this tartan is to disable the men on board of her i wish to goodness i could think of some other when we close with her let the marines fire a well-aimed volley you must get some marines to stand by aft as well i hope we may shoot away his halyards once his sails are down on his deck he is ours for the trouble of putting a boat over the side for more than half an hour captain vincent stood silent elbow on rail keeping his eye on the tartan while on board the latter payroll steered silent and watchful but intensely conscious of the enemy ship holding on her relentless pursuit the narrow red band was dying out of the sky the french coast black against the fading light merged into the shadows gathering in the eastern board citizen chevola somewhat soothed by the assurance that he would not die by drowning had elected to remain quiet where he had fallen not daring to trust himself to move on the lively deck michel squatting to windward gazed intently at payroll in expectation of some order at any minute but payroll uttered no word and made no sign from time to time a burst of foam flew over the tartan or a splash of water would come aboard with a scurrying noise it was not till the corvette had got within a long gunshot from the tartan that payroll opened his mouth no he burst out loud in the wind as if giving vent to long anxious thinking no i could not have left you behind with not even a dog for company devil take me if i don't think you would not have thanked me for it either what do you say to that michel a half-puzzled smile dwelt persistently on the guileless countenance of the ex-fisherman he stated what he had always thought in respect of payroll's every remark i think you are right maitre listen then michel that ship will be alongside of us in less than half an hour as she comes up they will open on us with musketry they will open on us repeated michel looking quite interested but how do you know they will do that maitre because her captain has got to obey what is in my mind said payroll in a tone of positive and solemn conviction he will do it as sure as if i were at his ear telling him what to do he will do it because he is a first-rate seaman but i michel i am just a little bit cleverer than he he glanced over his shoulder at the amelia rushing after the tartan with swelling sails and raised his voice suddenly he will do it because no more than half a mile ahead of us is the spot where payroll will die michel did not start he only shut his eyes for a time and the rover continued in a lower tone i may be shot through the heart at once he said and in that case you have my permission to let go the halyards if you are alive yourself but if i live i mean to put the helm down when i do that you will let go the foresheet to help the tartan to fly into the wind's eye this is my last order to you now go forward and fear nothing. Adieu.
Michel obeyed without a word. Half a dozen of the Amelia's marines stood ranged on the forecastle head, ready with their muskets. Captain Vincent walked into the lee waist to watch his chase. When he thought that the jaboom of the Amelia had drawn level with the stern of the Tartan, he waved his hat, and the marines discharged their muskets. Apparently, no gear was cut. Captain Vincent observed the white-headed man who was steering clap his hand to his left side while he hove the tiller to leeward and brought the tartan sharply into the wind. The marines on the poop fired in their turn, all the reports merging into one. Voices were heard on the decks crying that they had hit the white-haired chap! Captain Vincent shouted to the master, Get the ship round on the other tack! The elderly seaman who was the master of the Amelia took a critical look before he gave the necessary orders, and the Amelia closed on her chase, with her decks resounding to the piping of boatswain's mates and the hoarse shout, Hands shorten sail! About ship! Peyrol, lying on his back under the swinging tiller, heard the calls shrilling and dying away. He heard the ominous rush of the Amelia's bow wave as the sloop foamed within ten yards of the Tartan's stern. He even saw her upper yards coming down, and then everything vanished out of the clouded sky. There was nothing in his ears but the sound of the wind, the wash of the waves buffeting the little craft left without guidance, and the continuous thrashing of its foresail, the sheet of which Michel had let go according to orders. The tartan began to roll heavily, but Peyrol's right arm was sound, and he managed to put it round a bollard to prevent himself from being flung about. A feeling of peace sank into him, not unmingled with pride. Everything he had planned had come to pass. He had meant to play that man a trick, and now the trick had been played. Played by him better than by any other old man on whom age had stolen unnoticed, till the veil of peace was torn down by the touch of a sentiment unexpected like an intruder and cruel like an enemy. Perrault rolled his head to the left. All he could see were the legs of citizen Chevola sliding nervelessly to and fro to the rolling of the vessel as if his body had been jammed somewhere. Dead? or only scared to death. And Michel? Was he dead or dying? That man without friends, whom his pity had refused to leave behind, marooned on the earth, without even a dog for company. As to that, Peyrol felt no compunction. But he thought he would have liked to see Michel once more. He tried to utter his name, but his throat refused him even a whisper. He felt himself removed far away from that world of human sounds in which Arlette had screamed at him, Perrault, don't you dare! He would never hear anybody's voice again. Under that gray sky there was nothing for him but the swish of breaking seas and the ceaseless furious beating of the tartan's foresail. His plaything was knocking about terribly under him, with her tiller flying madly to and fro, just clear of his head, and solid lumps of water coming on board over his prostrate body. 
Suddenly, in a desperate lurch which brought the whole Mediterranean with a ferocious snarl level with the slope of the little deck, Peyrol saw the Amelia bearing right down upon the Tartan. The fear, not of death, but of failure, gripped his slowing-down heart. Was this blind Englishman going to run him down and sink the dispatches together with the craft? With a mighty effort of his ebbing strength, Peyrol sat up and flung his arm round the shroud of the mainmast. The Amelia, whose way had carried her past the Tartan for a quarter of a mile before sail could be shortened and her yards swung on the other tack, was coming back to take possession of her chase. In the deepening dusk and amongst the foaming seas, it was a matter of difficulty to make out the little craft. At the very moment when the master of the man-of-war, looking out anxiously from the forecastle head, thought that she might perhaps have filled and gone down, he caught sight of her rolling in the trough of the sea, and so close that she seemed to be at the end of the Amelia's jibboom. His heart flew in his mouth. "'Hard a starboard!' he yelled, his order being passed along the decks. Peyrol, sinking back on the deck in another heavy lurch of his craft, saw for an instant the whole of the English corvette swing up into the clouds as if she meant to fling herself upon his very breast. A blown sea-top flicked his face noisily, followed by a smooth interval. A silence of the waters. He beheld in a flash the days of his manhood, of strength and adventure. Suddenly an enormous voice, like the roar of an angry sea lion, seemed to fill the whole of the empty sky in a mighty and commanding shout, STEADY! And with the sound of that familiar English word ringing in his ears, Peyrol smiled to his visions and died. The Amelia, stripped down to her topsails and hove to, rose and fell easily, while on her quarter, about a cable's length away, Peyrol's tartan tumbled like a lifeless corpse amongst the seas. Captain Vincent, in his favorite attitude of leaning over the rail, kept his eyes fastened on his prize. Mr. Bolt, who had been sent for, waited patiently till his commander turned round. "'Oh, here you are, Mr. Bolt. I have sent for you to go and take possession.' You speak French, and there may still be somebody alive in her. If so, of course you will send him on board at once. I am sure there can be nobody unwounded there. It will anyhow be too dark to see much, but just have a good look round and secure everything in the way of papers you can lay your hands on. Haul aft the foresheet and sail her up to receive a tow-line. I intend to take her along and ransack her thoroughly in the morning, tear down the cuddy linings and so on, should you not find at once what I expect. Captain Vincent, his white teeth gleaming in the dusk, gave some further orders in a lower tone, and Mr. Bolt departed in a hurry. Half an hour afterwards he was back on board, and the Amelia, with the tartan in tow, made sail to the eastward in search of the blockading fleet. Mr. Bolt, introduced into a cabin strongly lighted by a swinging lamp, tendered to his captain across the table, a sailcloth package, corded and sealed, and a piece of paper folded in four, which, he explained, seemed to be a certificate of registry, strangely enough mentioning no name. Captain Vincent seized the grey canvas package eagerly. "'This looks like the very thing, Bolt,' he said, turning it over in his hands. "'What else did you find on board?' 
Bolt said that he had found three dead men, two on the afterdeck and one lying at the bottom of the open hold with the bare end of the foresheet in his hand. Shot down, I suppose, just as he had let it go, he commented. He described the appearance of the bodies and reported that he had disposed of them according to orders. In the Tartan's cabin there was half a demijohn of wine and a loaf of bread in a locker, also on the floor a leather valise containing an officer's uniform coat and a change of clothing. He had lighted the lamp and saw that the linen was marked E. Real. An officer's sword on a broad shoulder belt was also lying on the floor. These things could not have belonged to the old chap with the white hair, who was a big man. "'Looks as if somebody had tumbled overboard,' commented Bolt. Two of the bodies looked nondescript, but there was no doubt about that fine old fellow being a seaman. "'By heaven!' said Captain Vincent. "'He was that! Do you know, Bolt, that he nearly managed to escape us? Another twenty minutes would have done it. How many wounds had he?' Three, I think, sir. I did not look closely,' said Bolt. "'I hated the necessity of shooting brave men like dogs,' said Captain Vincent. "'Still, it was the only way. "'And there may be something here,' he went on, slapping the package with his open palm, "'that will justify me in my own eyes. "'You may go now.' Captain Vincent did not turn in, but only lay down, fully dressed, on the couch, till the officer of the watch, appearing at the door, told him that a ship of the fleet was in sight away to windward. Captain Vincent ordered the private night signal to be made. When he came on deck, the towering shadow of a line of battle ship that seemed to reach to the very clouds was well within hail, and a voice bellowed from her through a speaking trumpet. "'What ship is that?' "'His Majesty's sloop, Amelia!' hailed back Captain Vincent. "'What ship is that, pray?' Instead of the usual answer, there was a short pause, and another voice spoke boisterously through the trumpet. "'Is that you, Vincent? Don't you know the superb when you see her?' "'Not in the dark, Keats. How are you? I am in a hurry to speak the Admiral.' "'The fleet is lying by,' came the voice, now with painstaking distinctness across the murmurs, whispers, and splashes of the black lane of water dividing the two ships. "'The Admiral bears S.S.E.' If you stretch on till daylight as you are, you will fetch him on the other tack in time for breakfast on board the Victory. Is anything up? At every slight roll, the sails of the Amelia, becalmed by the bulk of the seventy-four, flapped gently against the masts. Not much, hailed Captain Vincent. I made a prize. Have you been in action? came the swift inquiry. No, no. Piece of luck. Where's your prize? roared the speaking trumpet with interest. "'In my desk!' roared Captain Vincent in reply. "'Enemy dispatches! "'I say, Keats, fill on your ship! "'Fill on her, I say, or you'll be falling on board of me!' "'He stamped his foot impatiently. "'Clap some hands at once on the tow-line "'and run that tartan close under our stern!' "'He called to the officer of the watch. "'Or else the old superb will walk over her "'without ever knowing anything about it!' "'When Captain Vincent presented himself on board the Victory, "'it was too late for him to be invited "'to share the Admiral's breakfast.' He was told that Lord Nelson had not been seen on deck yet that morning, and presently word came that he wished to see Captain Vincent at once in his cabin. Being introduced, the captain of the Amelia, in undress uniform, with a sword by his side and his hat under his arm, was received kindly, 
made his bow, and with a few words of explanation, laid the packet on the big round table at which sat a silent secretary in black clothes, who had been obviously writing a letter from his lordship's dictation. The admiral had been walking up and down, and after he had greeted Captain Vincent, he resumed his pacing of a nervous man. His empty sleeve had not yet been pinned on his breast, and swung slightly every time he turned in his walk. His thin locks fell lank against the pale cheeks, and the whole face in repose had an expression of suffering with which the fire of his one eye presented a startling contrast. He stopped short and exclaimed while Captain Vincent towered over him in a respectful attitude. "'A tartan! Captured on board a tartan? How on earth did you pitch upon that one out of the hundreds you must see every month?' "'I must confess that I got hold accidentally of some curious information,' said Captain Vincent. "'It was all a piece of luck.'" End of section 17